1: Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. We've got plenty in store for you on this week's show. We'll be previewing the start of England's series in India. We'll be reacting to all the cricket that's been going on around the world. And we've got a special interview between Joe and Owen Morgan later in the show that is well worth a listen. I'm Yasrana, and to discuss all that and much more on this very gloomy Wednesday morning, I'm joined by the Wisdom Cricket Monthly trio of Phil Walker, Joe Harmon, and Jim Wallace. Still no Harry Kane, folks, so if any of our listeners has an in with Harry, do let us know. The biggest and most exciting piece of news this week, at least from an English perspective, was the news that Channel 4 are set to broadcast the India-England series in the UK. For non-UK-based listeners, Channel 4 is a free-to-air broadcaster. You don't need a subscription for it. And if the series is shown on Channel 4, it'll be the first time since the 2005 Ashes that English Test Cricket will be shown live on free-to-air TV in the UK. Well, I must stress that with less than 48 hours to go until the start of the series, nothing has actually been confirmed yet, although The Guardian are reporting that everything is signed, sealed, and sorted. Phil, obviously this is amazing news. It's not quite the same as a thrilling World Cup final that goes to a Super over, but the potential this series could have as the country's in lockdown and doesn't have a whole lot else to do could be could be huge.
2: Yeah, it could, and I think it's it's in the context of lockdown that has has driven the price up um, and made it appealing for, for a terrestrial broadcaster. Uh, without, without that, uh, in so-called peacetime and people are hootling off to work, then it would be a different kind of story, I think. But as things stand, Channel 4 have recognized that uh, they might be able to snap up one of the real marquee series here. And uh, it, will, it will be glorious if it happens for so many reasons. It will be a nostalgia trip for, for people of a certain age. Um, we'll be on tenterhooks to see if Lou Bega is is retained. Um, We're all crossing our fingers on that. Uh, God knows who's going to be presenting it. Obviously, it will be the Indian commentary feed, but it will still have to be helmed by by a handful of people in in the UK. There's been rumours that Strauss and Cook have been have been approached. Um, I don't know if if that's if that's true or not. Uh, But However this thing is carved up, if it does end up on Channel 4, then it's, it's, uh, it's a significant moment really for the game. Um, coming on the back of the BBC's uh, re- regenerated interest, if you like, last year and going forward through the hundred and now to see another terrestrial broadcaster being prepared to put a bit of money behind the game. Um, it's, it's a tantalising thing and just hopefully it, it does happen. Just one thing. Forty-eight hours, as you say, forty-eight hours to go until the first ball is bowled, and we still don't know for sure. I mean, I know the BCCI fancies playing this kind of game. It's a power. Uh, it's a it's a statement of of power and preeminence, isn't it? I suppose they we need them so much more than they need us, uh, and they like to see the little people scrabbling around in the boardrooms to see who might be able to come up with this one. But now, now. As you say, The Guardian's reporting it. It's almost certainly going to, going to be happening on Channel 4, and, and that is it's a reason to be cheerful in these these dark and miserable times.
0: <laughs> yeah, amazing news. Uh, I, I wonder if it's... We're not hearing anything. Everybody, I mean, the report says that the, the deal is done... But it's curious that it's not officially been sort of sanctioned. There's been no white smoke. So I wonder if that's because they are scrabbling around with so many people contracted to other things. And, you know, they can't, it's not just a case of they send up the old Channel 4 bat signal and everyone gets back together. It's been so long that everyone's either doing other stuff or dearly departed or whatever. So I wonder if they are taking their time to actually see what sort of... Um, make up the show will actually look like whether they'll have to take the feed from india not do any live commentary and just have a few people in a makeshift studio whether it's cook and strauss i can't see that i mean i mean everyone surely every broadcaster in the in the country with has been sort of uh, following big dogs at channel four on twitter and stuff and sort of trying to stake their claim so it'll be, it will be interesting to see i wonder if i wonder if that's why we're not hearing anything because they're trying to sort their lineup finalize it before they announce it
1: Joe, I think it's, it's quite Phil, Phil touched on it there that we talk so much and we have talked so much in the show about the potential of the 100 exception what that could do for English cricket, having a bit of high quality cricket on free-to-air television and then totally out of the blue, it, you get a, a marquee test series uh, going on free-to-air, kind of prime time for a working audience in a way. Uh, and, and just uh, plucking up some numbers from that Guardian report. So according to the Guardian, Channel 4 attracted a peak of 8.4 million view, viewers when it last showed Test Cricket in 2005. And when they broadcast the World Cup final at the same, tie, same time as Sky Sports in 2019, that brought in 15.4 million people over the course of the day. Um, and research by the ECB suggested a third of that audience is watching cricket for the first time. And I think for so long, we kind of uh, assume that you know, young players who've come to the game now, et cetera, were inspired by the 2000, 2005 Ashes, et cetera. But young players coming through now actually won't remember the 2005 Ashes, which is quite scary. I mean, how, how big do you think this potentially could be?
3: I don't think we should get carried away. What, what it really needs is people who, because obviously cricket fans are going to tune in anyway. What it needs is people to, who aren't cricket fans or casual fans to wake up on day five of a test match and hear that something fantastic is happening and, and feel like they need to tune in and watch it. I think we're probably stretching expectations if we think that a casual fan or someone who's never watched cricket before is going to think, oh, I'm going to get up at 4.30 in the morning and see what this is all about. So we need, we need the event to back this up in order for it to be a success. But either way, it's a great development. I do wonder if you're a Sky subscriber, uh, obviously you can watch it anyway because it's Channel 4 and it's free, but you might be wondering why you're paying your Sky subscription if you're doing it largely because you're a cricket fan and they're not paying out for the uh, England India series that's the sort of odd development I can't quite get my head around that perhaps more news will come out in the in the coming days but uh, it's usually exciting it's also it's I'm finding it there must be a lot of very stressed people at Channel 4 at the moment I'm finding it quite (laughs) stressful I can't unlike Phil I can't handle leaving things to the last minute so uh... (laughs)
2: that's a low blow (laughs) but an entirely fair one
3: so I just I need those I's dotted and those T's crossed before I can actually relax, even though I have no involvement in the thing whatsoever. <laughs> Did you pre-plan that? <laughs> Only about 20 seconds ago. Yeah, all right. Yeah,
1: okay. <laughs> no, maybe I'm being uh, a little bit too optimistic, but I do remember being at school during the 2005 Ashes and just remembering, obviously that was an amazing series and that contributed to it as well, but remembering how many people who had previously shown no interest in cricket suddenly cared. I I remember at school that, I basically had, uh, at that age, I had like one friend who I knew who liked cricket. That was it. And we were the only two people. I remember, yeah, this is an old story, I guess. So I remember we, there was a school, there was a school trip uh, that wasn't that exciting. And then we were, we were walking and then we realized we, not only we both liked cricket, but we were like complete cricket tragics. So we, like, we ended up like picking a combined all time Surrey 11, like picking your, your Ken Barrington's, et cetera. And we were about nine at the time. Um, anyway, I thought he was the only other person in the school who liked cricket. And then uh, after some holidays and the last couple of tests of the oval Ashes came out, everyone was really interested. Everyone was playing cricket in the playground, et cetera. So who knows? You know, you know Dom Sibley could inspire that in the next generation of um, cricket lovers <laughs> over the next couple um, of
2: months. Cautionary tale, BT Sports took on the ashes of, what was it, 2017, 18, with a grand plan uh, to, to screen a stunning series, uh, an ebbing and flowing stunning series that would bring in the punters and get them to subscribe. Obviously, that was a horror show. Uh, that backfired spectacularly on them. And the one concern, I guess, with, with this deal, is if it does go ahead, is that quite soon, it will be unwatchable to all but the most desperate kind of sadists of which we're four of them. Uh, and And hopefully... Hopefully it will be a humdinger of a series, but if it's not, it could be quite a long old trudge. It'll for it will be
0: Channel Four's uh, <laughs> soldiers, you know. There'll be a hashtag. Where, where is Fraser trending? And it'll be, uh, we'll be <laughs> yeah, cricket yeah. fans will be getting lynched because of the <clears throat> the daily programme of Channel Four has been put out for. Because they've got the whole thing right, they're doing the, all the test matches. It's not um, well. We don't know the fine details, but there's they might put it out to other broadcasters as well is that right if it's non-exclusive so that's right but, but
3: also the Guardian story I believe said that this was including the ODIs and t 20s mm-hmm. as well which that is potentially even if the the test series ends up 4-0 and we all hope it won't and actually <laughs> I, I don't think it will now but we'll come on to that um the, the ODIs and T20s will hopefully reel some some people in and, and may perhaps manage to kind of
0: keep their attention better than a test match if they're if they're kind of introducing themselves yeah. to cricket for the first time If not, it's a long time to go without your morning fix of Everybody Loves Raymond. (laughs) It's suddenly a a genius move to have Joss Butler miss the majority of the Test series and come back for
2: the one-dayers, isn't it? (laughs) Genius by the ECB yet again.
1: They they, they knew all along, surely. Um, One final thing on this. Phil, is is there anything... You know, We're we're talking about the potential positives of this series being on free-to-air television. Is there anything... can be done to ensure that there's more of this in the future or realistically given the financial corner the game's in at the moment um we kind of have to take it if the opportunity arises but there's not a huge amount that the ecb and governing bodies can actually do
2: well with winter tours is you know it's all up for grabs isn't it it's just the wild west uh and whoever whoever shoots the quickest and, and the most and puts the most money behind the bar is is going to get the Going to get the contract um, obviously the the summer stuff is sewn up by sky 's ongoing and fruitful relationship with the ECB but of course, as we 've said already, uh, that relationship is now a more evolved one, um, and terrestrial TV now has a stake in the game and that's from what it, from what you you hear from the bbc that's that 's an ongoing thing now that will be running for the next few years that they, they uh, they fully believe in the hundred, or rather, they fully believed in a new competition. We don't need to get down that rabbit hole again, but certainly they are behind it. Um, and and I think behind closed doors, there's an acknowledgement from people at Sky as well that, for all their brilliance, their award-winning brilliance, uh, which is unquestioned, there is there is that point that you can't get fully inspired by something you can't see, and there is a, a logical sort of economic. Benefit from Sky's perspective to allowing some cricket to be shown on terrestrial TV as a kind of showcase, if you like. And so I think people at Sky are very comfortable with a with a, a slightly shared content um, during the English summers from here on in. Uh, but as you, but as you say, as for the winter stuff, well, it's it's all up for grabs. And as we've we've touched on before, um, competition is maybe good for for cricket boards, but it's not necessarily good for uh punters who are often squeezed for the pennies themselves and especially in in this current economic climate there's a strong rumor that amazon are going to be coming into play for the next ashes next winter if that happens uh then that will be another drain on the purse of the of the individual um so yeah it's it's a it's a slightly confused landscape really out there um but let's just take it one step at a time. And, and there's, there's reasons to be cheerful, I think, uh, going into the next few weeks if Channel 4 do in, indeed grab the gig. Um, I personally can't wait. I think it'll be stunning.
1: On to the series itself. Joe, you, you, you're hoping for excited exciting series. Everyone's hoping for an exciting series. Um, do you give England a chance? Can you see them winning any tests?
4: Um, well, I think I said
3: last week that the series in Sri Lanka, the win in Sri Lanka, the manner of that victory, the way Joe Root is playing has convinced me that England will, will win a test match. Whether they can win more than one is a stretch. Um, we always have to go back to that that stat that uh, India have lost one test uh, at home since England beat them in a series in 2012. So these these victories don't happen regularly. Um, but I do think England are capable of, of winning out there. I I, I would probably guess... 3-1, maybe 2-1 if England can, can hold on for a draw there. I think a, a series win, I, I, I struggle to see it, to be honest. I don't think England have the spinners to to beat India in more test matches than India beat England in a full test series.
1: Jim? Yeah,
0: similarly sort of pessimistic. Uh, I, I think it would be amazing if if England got something out of the series, whether that be a, a drawn series or that's probably wishful thinking. But I think if they won a test match and maybe drew a few test matches, that would be a huge achievement. Uh, it's all about the batting, isn't it? If if uh, England can bat and bat and bat for days and put some pressure on and, and, and do that thing where when they bowl, they've got runs on the board, but also they can put pressure on the Indian batsmen in their in their conditions, then they could get away with something. I think a lot hinges on the Root versus Coley, uh, who, who does the best there. If Root is in, in his current form that he's shown in Sri Lanka, then potentially he could have a sort of series where he puts himself back in that top four with uh, Smith and Kane Williamson as well and and sort of carry a series on his back. I don't know if Root has yet sort of won a series uh, single-handedly, as, as you might say, people like um, Flintoff did or, or Michael Vaughan in, in the past. So that'd be an interesting uh, thing to look at. But yeah, I mean, my heart says a draw. My head probably says they'll go down 3-1 or something like that.
1: But if England do leave the series with a respectable result, it maybe it may not a series draw or win, but say 2-1 defeat even, what, what do you think will be key to them achieving that?
2: Uh, I, think there, I think there are reasons for them to be cautiously optimistic and I'm not being uh, blind to this. I mean, I might be speaking utter garbage, of course, but, Never. I'm, not, but I'm, I'm not letting my heart rule my head. Uh, truth be told, between just us four, you know, I don't massively mind what happens. <laughs> uh, but, but looking at it on paper, India, India, Jadeja's not playing at least for the start of the series and possibly for the whole series. That's a huge miss straight off the bat. England do not play left arm spinners very well and he's the best of the lot. So that's a huge miss. And I know that they will have other options bringing in and, you know, maybe may uh, the uh, the left the left arm wrist spinner... Uh, Kuldeep Yadav, he might get, get the gig, or maybe it'll be Washington Sundar, who played in the last Test match against Australia, but he's, that was his first first-class game in three years. So whoever it's going to be is going to be um, a less potent option than Jadeja. They've, they've, they've got two quicks who aren't going to be playing in the first two Test matches. Uh, Mohamed Shami's not playing, and nor is, um, is uh, Yadav. So neither of those two pedigree quicks are playing. Uh, they obviously have a sensational batting lineup, um, but there are there are holes in that first eleven. Um, it's not quite as strong a first eleven as they would be putting out under normal circumstances. And then you look from the English side: Joe Root's in the form of his life, the best player of spin in the world, or certainly uh, as good as any player of spin in the world. Um, Stokes is probably the most complete cricketer in the world. Um, they're two gun seamers, albeit that they may and probably will be alternating, and Anderson and Broad are both in form, both bowling well. India have five um, right handers in the top six or seven, uh, and Jack Leach is England's best finger spinner. So it will be fascinating to see how he goes. I was tempted to say, and they have in Josh Butler a potential game changer who's finally nailed test cricket, but tragically, well, not tragically. He's not even close to being tragic, but unfortunately he's only been playing one out of the four test matches now we've touched on that before we don't need to talk about a game England are obviously there's all kinds of issues around their team you know the opening opening pair the who's going to back three with Bairstow at home all of these things you've got to throw into the mix Dan Lawrence is a tyro who had one good test match and, and one poor one in, in Sri Lanka so there's loads and loads of holes uh, and it's hard to make a case that England to go out there and win it, or even that they're going to go out there and draw it. It's hard to make that case. But also, I'm a bit baffled by people lining up and saying, oh, it's going to be 4-0, it's just going to be 4-0. <laughs> I just don't see that. I just don't see that based on based on the players that are on the park. A lot of it will hinge on, on the pitches, but then the curator is saying that he wants to produce a proper cricket wicket. Now, this may end up being a bit of kidology, but the curator of, of Chennai's pitch and saying he wants to see something in it for the quicks, initially runs on days two and three, and then the spinners that come into play towards the end. When I was out there in 2012, uh, that was, was, say, what most of the pitches were like. Um, England won that series. Just want to say one more tiny, tiny thing, very, very quickly. I do believe in averages in sport, uh, in the law of averages. uh, And, all right on paper, India are kind of impenetrable at home. But that can't go on forever. It can't go on infinitely that they never lose a test match at home. Uh, and I think now, now England have got a reasonably good chance of, of putting up a decent fight here. I really do.
1: Mm. In a
2: month's time, you can tell me that I've, I've spoken nonsense.
1: No, I, I increasingly am coming to the view that I think England got a real chance. I said this last week, but in that first test, if England just announced this morning that Oli Pope is fit for that first test... Have um, they? Yeah. he is, oh, okay. He's in the squad now. Um, and if Stokes is fit enough to bowl, then that's a strong England top seven with lots of bowling options And as you alluded to. Um, and that India side is, I know they just beat Australia in Australia and that was one of the greatest series in etc., et cetera, et cetera. But it is a reasonably undercooked attack. Um, Ashwin missed the end of that series. Boomer missed uh, tests there. Ishan missed the whole tour if he plays. So You know, an undercooked attack against an England batting lineup that, yeah, isn't it has its flaws, but has uh, lots of exciting parts to it. I think is reasonably well placed for that first Test match, and then who knows if England can nick that first Test match, then we could have a, a real, real good series on our hands. Although I, I think if England don't win that first Test, I can see it going three or four nil.
2: As ever, Stokes is so important, and and you're right to to acknowledge the. The, the bowling side of his game. Um, if he is in in the, in a condition to bowl twenty five thirty overs a test match, then it changes the whole complexion of this team. If they can't guarantee that, then it becomes a squeezed bowling attack. Um, but if if Stokes is is good to go, and you never quite know, and you never want to over push him, but if he's good to go, then it opens up that bowling attack. You can play two spinners. You can play the the right arm off break bowler and leech plus two seamers and Stokes. Uh, but if Stokes isn't quite there to, to bowl those kinds of, to get through that amount of work, then it's, it's a different kind of story. Uh, but they will be hoping, and apparently from what I've read, he's, he's been, been going at it hard in the net and he looks good and he looks in shape and he's certainly rested. So yeah, I think, I think they have a, a bit of variety in the bowling attack um, and some players in form with the bat.
3: On, um, on reasons to be cheerful, I just want to go back to uh, Jadeja because... I think Phil was absolutely right to, to point that out as a, as a hugely significant loss for, for India. And I would equate it, perhaps not in a kind of the t- same talismanic way as the Stokes, but I think it's, it's, it's a bit like if England didn't have Ben Stokes going into the series in the conditions that India are playing in. A few months ago, last summer, we got Crickviz to do a, a big study for us on the most valuable test cricketers of the 21st century. Uh, and Judasia came out at number two across the board. Only Merlitharine was more valuable to his team than Jadeja had been to India over the last 20 years. Um, that's largely with the ball, but it's also with the bat, and it's largely in home conditions. Um, so he is, he is a huge loss, and there, and there are obviously decent candidates to replace him, but there is no one of his quality to come in. Uh, so I think that, that really will give England a little bit of a lift heading into that series. The thought of Jadeja at one, end, and at other at the other, and England struggling is a kind of nightmare situation for England, and probably one we all anticipated. Uh, but now, without Jadeja there, that kind of opens it up a bit, and obviously India have a brilliant seam attack, but I do think not having that second world-class spinner uh, could make
2: a big difference. Joe, um, Bess or Moe for your second spinner, assuming that Leach is your first? Is Leach your first?
3: Leach is definitely my first. Um, yeah, it's, I think I, it's tighter. to... Ben wrote a good piece on this for the for wisdom.com, saying really, there should be no debate. It should, it should obviously be best based on on stats and current form and but actually, if Moen does offer that something that you can't quite, you can't quite describe. You don't know how it's going to go. I would go for best, just because I don't think you can underestimate how important that Sri Lanka series was. If, if we just tear up that England side that won two nil in Sri Lanka and, and bring in players who haven't played red Bull cricket for a long time, then you do start to wonder how useful that kind of preparation was. So I would go best for the first test alongside Leach. And with the expectation that Moen does play a part at some, at some stage later in the series. But it is hard to know when to, to, to bring him back in because he's had so little red ball cricket and so little bowling for a long period of time now.
2: This is the the snag, isn't it? That whenever Moen comes back in, if he is going to play one of these four tests, then he will, he will have to come in cold. There's no other way around it. Um, it's for that reason in part that I'm leaning by it by you know the, the width of a rizzler paper, I'm leaning towards Mowing ahead of Bess, uh, in part because I want him involved in the series somewhere down the line and may as well get, get him in there now. I mean, it's such a sort of peculiarly lopsided setup at the moment anyway with Bearstow at home and Butler going back and so on. I would be tempted to get him in and it's a slightly negative reason, as extra reason, but him at eight versus Bess at eight in a team where... Last time out, four years ago, England kept getting 400 and losing. Um, this time, they've got to get 500 to avoid defeat and then start from there. Uh, and so, while Mo is as unpredictable as they come, as we know with the bat, and could stink the place out quite easily, I am leaning towards Mo in part for that reason, because Mo in at eight, when you're six down, three 300 and something on the on the board, I'd rather him coming out there than than Don Bess. Um, but look. It's a it's a tricky one, and it's such a shame that Moeen got ill, isn't it? Because I think he would have featured at least in one of those Test matches in Sri Lanka, and then we'd have known a little bit more. Um, anyway, who, who knows? It Starts in a couple of days.
0: Thank
5: God <laughs> <That's>, for that. <laughs> the,
0: I I can't remember the set. The, it's obviously because of the back of the England the Australia India series and, and England doing well in Sri Lanka and you know more Test matches this year than uh, other years and all the COVID stuff. But there's so many sort of issues to pick through and and it's so exciting that i i can't remember another test series that was built up like this for a long time so just being devil's advocate the reason that sky you think haven't bidded for this series is because they're holding out to to spend their coin on on the ashes in at the end of the year do you think that if england would uh, so let me pose a question would you take england beating india in india as as a uh, as over England winning the Ashes in Australia now, because you look at that India team and they're you know they're probably going to have four or five greats of the game. Do you think that would you take England win, beating them in India over England winning the Ashes? No, no. <laughs> I think it would be a better achievement.
3: Yeah. yeah, but I would, but I would rather England win the Ashes just from that sort of kind of pathetic cricket rivalry standpoint more than anything else.
2: Really, also. Um, Caveat, the times we live in short, look at how the ECB, look at how the top brass have approached this series as well. Um, a very prominent journalist said to me on WhatsApp, um, basically England gave up on this series in November when they decided that they would be sending certain people home at certain points in the series. The, the chances of them sending two, two of their key players home for, say, the first test match at Brisbane is, is none. Nil. null. No chance, no chance. Not a cat in hell's chance. Um, It it remains, perhaps pathetically, but it remains absolutely the be-all and end-all in English cricket. Uh, And, you know, it shouldn't do. And as Joe says, if you're talking about cricketing achievement, then Mm. this is a harder place to go and get a result over a long test series in Australia. Mm. If you're talking about what, what concerns them, what ticks the boxes... And how they they formulate their their kind of their criteria of, of success, what English cricket deems to be successful, then it's it's the it's the two yearly thing uh, against Australia, and it was it was ever thus, and it will ever be thus.
3: In, incidentally, uh, Joe Root got asked that exact question on Quick Info's, uh what is it, polite inquiries, um, and. I thought he was going to kind of just give the diplomatic answer of oh, both really important series, more winning every game we can, but he <laughs> said Australia, uh, and we kind of know that's true anyway, but he justified it on a personal basis because he did win in India in his debut series, and yeah. he's yet to win in Australia, uh, and he's also had some pretty rough matches in Australia, pretty rough series in Australia, so... From Joe, if you ask Joe root that question, uh, he's pretty emphatic, which, is, which it, is more important. Yeah, so what do you think?
1: Well, I think if you England did win in, in, in Australia and then in India in quite a short space of time ten years ago, and I think people talk about ten eleven more, but the twenty twelve win in India was just a much, much bigger achievement and it, it required more from England's very best players to win that series. And I think I mean teams do beat Australia in Australia. I know England don't very often, but Safe won there three times this century, India won there twice now and the short space of time, beating India in India is a a greater achievement. I think, quietly, this is is one of England, I think this is England's best test side in quite a few years, possibly since that uh, Strauss side or maybe early Cook year side. And I think beating India in India would would trump any success in Australia, purely quitting, even though though I think obviously England fans would rather win in Australia. Exactly.
0: And that's what makes it so exciting, the fact that it, it is... There's just a sniff of this being so glorious because it is on free to air. India have got a great side. England have got a sort of a really strong side. And, you know, there's a chance that they could do something uh, incredible on on Channel this, this 4 at 6 very... o'clock in the morning. This, <laughs> this has got, Give got very... Give me something.
2: <laughs> this feels uncomfortably like uh, building into a football world cup where for months no we don't have a chance no we're rubbish don't have a midfield as for the fullbacks forget the goalkeeper and now mere minutes before this thing kicks off oh do you know what
1: what?
3: yeah yeah. i was gonna say come come next january after the sydney test we might (laughs) laugh at the idea that we were taking our pick of which series we would rather win yeah,
2: in my, <laughs> my defence, I've been consistently on wrong on this one <laughs> right from the start. But anyway, <laughs> we see.
4: Yeah.
1: looking looking at the India squad, the big selection dilemma is is essentially who replaces Jadeja for that Jadeja spot, um, and given various all round options, they could go one of various ways. So I think their side will be Shubman Roach Rohit Sharma, Pajara, Kohli, Rohani, Pant, somebody, Ashwin, Bumrah, Siraj, Ishant. The options there are Hardik Pandya, possibly Saha to take the gloves, Axar Patel to offer left-arm spin option, uh Washington Sundar played the most recent test, Shardul Thakur possibly, who uh, did really well in the Brisbane test or potentially cool Deep. Uh Joe, which way do you think they will go or should go?
3: Well, Axar Patel is the like-for-like the like in the sense that you've got the left-arm spinner so that that's the way I, I would go. That being said, I've never seen him bowl a ball with a red ball. Uh, he looks a tidy one-day spinner. He doesn't look like he's going to tear through England with a red ball. But let's let's see that happen over the next few days after I've said that now. So that's the way I'd go. Uh, Koudé Yadav yeah, would obviously be the kind of exciting uh, selection and a bit of a risk. But England, after struggling against him in his first ODIs, have played him very comfortably since then. And I, I obviously a different format, but I think that will be that would be in their minds. Uh, and it feels very harsh to drop Washington Sunday after what he did in Australia. But um, that was a bit of a kind of a freak opportunity. Uh, so I don't. So yeah, I would go Axel Petel,
0: the, the light for light left arm spinner. Especially on the back of Ben Baldinia causing such problems and him being that sort yeah. of. And, and pretty similar action and, and, and all that sort of thing. You'd think that England did look like it, they, he was a bit of a bogeyman for them. So um, yeah, I would, I would go with Joe. and And go for XR.
1: Joe, what's your moment of the week?
0: Uh, So mine uh, is a series of interviews I
3: did which relates to spin in India and English spinners in India. So I spoke to Ian Salisbury, Monty Panassar, Safran Sari and Gareth Batty, who between them cover all but one of England's test tours of India over the last 30 years. Um, I spoke to them about the art of bowling spin in India, the specific challenges involved but also kind of the overall experience and the pressure of suddenly being expected to perform a completely different match-winning role to that which they perform in England, uh, particularly they've kind of developed in county cricket where you're lucky to get a few overs. Uh, there's plenty of cautionary tales among them, as, as you'd expect. Uh, in Salisbury's is kind of the, the sort of most freakish story, I guess, in that he went out there in 1993 as a net bowler, understudied to Embry and Tufnell, and then a couple of weeks later, he ends up playing as the solitary spinner in the first test in front of 100,000 at Eden Gardens. Uh, India <laughs> picked three spinners, by the way, and Salisbury said, one of us had it right and one of us had it wrong. And as it Do turned out... Do you remember
2: who else was in that the seam attack for England, Joe? That, um, uh, Dev Malcolm, yeah, Chris I, Lewis, I, Mark Elam? No, Elam didn't quite make the tour, but before his time. Um, Taylor. Well done, left arm seamer, Paul Taylor, up and down, workmanlike, good in English conditions, less so... Yeah, Eden Gardens, <laughs> arguably. And Paul Jarvis, uh, back from uh, his his latest Rebel Tour, you know, but he, he got the nod for that one. Um, Stick him quick, in. Quick through the air. Lovely to come onto the bat, I would imagine, in those kinds of conditions. <laughs> um, and then the following Test match, Richard Blakey batted at six uh, in that one. Um Gucci had a bad belly, didn't he? Bad, bad tummy, I think. Well, time. I was
3: going to come on to that as well. Not only did Salisbury have the challenges of bowling spin, uh, he also had the challenge of uh, Mike Gatting as their unofficial dietitian. So Gatting's <laughs> philosophy of eating in India was eat everything you can get your hands on when you first arrive, get it all in your system, get the bug, then recover, you're good to go. Uh, and Salisbury said this actually remarkably worked for Gatting, who was just made of kind of cast iron, but did not work so well for his teammates. So... Gooch was ruled out for the second test after having a prawn dinner with Gatting the night before. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Salisbury said it was remarkable to see kind of Gatting's eating
0: tour of, of India. Um, <laughs> how has Gatting not had a cookbook release with that sort of mentality? You know, sod the Hemsley sisters or whoever, Joe Witch, get it all in you and get the bug. I mean, <laughs> that's remarkable. There
3: was the immortal line from Salisbury of, uh, if you ate with Gat, you got taken down, which. Uh, Uh, England's got whitewashed in that series. Uh, It's probably worth adding. Uh, And then more recently, I spoke to Ansari and Batty, who were kind of the third wheels on the uh, last tour of India in 2016, acting as support spinners to Rashid and Moen. They each had a... Ansari played two tests, Batty played one. Even when they played, they got very few opportunities. There weren't really many overs to bowl. Both of them didn't really think they had the faith of Alistair Cook and both really struggled for rhythm and confidence, which it's worth bearing in mind. I don't think we'll get to a point of England considering playing three spinners in India, but it's a story worth calling if they are considering it, uh, because it is just difficult to get spinners enough overs to get the rhythm they need to do what they're expected to do. Um, but perhaps the most interesting of the interviews was Monty, who uh, had three tours out there, 2006, 2008, 2012, when he kind of famously, alongside Swan, bowled England to victory um, in that series. And, um, but yeah, it's worth remembering Monty had had, he obviously took Sachin for his first Test wicket in 2006, but really struggled on the rest of that tour and 2008. Uh, and I mean, it, Monty's one of the most skillful bowlers, spin bowlers England has ever produced. And it took him three tours to figure out really how to bowl well in India. And he said so himself. He said the wickets got a bit faster, he thought, due to the IPL. And the balls had a harder scene uh, in his third tour, uh, which meant it was a bit easier to get purchased for a bit longer. Um, and he was obviously a completely different bowler and and, and and bowled beautifully in that series, really outperformed Swan, came in after the first test defeat and England were unbeaten thereafter. But it just made me think it's worth bearing in mind when we see Bess and Leach bowling over the next few weeks that it took Monty three tours to get there uh, and these guys haven't had much cricket for a long time and we want them to do well and they're the best spinners alongside Moen that England have, uh, but we've got to be patient with them, I think.
1: Next up, we're going to play a section of an interview that Joe conducted with Owen Morgan um, that was part of the most recent issue of and Cricket Monthly. It was part of a special feature on the English game's biggest disruptors of the 21st century. Joe, it's a it's a very interesting interview. And before we play it, what, what gripped you most in that chat with Morgan? Um,
3: the thing I liked about it was that he immediately uh, grabbed hold of the team. He knew exactly why I was speaking to him, that he appreciated he was a disruptor. I would say, I mean, Listeners can make up their own minds. I think he's quite proud of his disruptor role in English cricket, that he's shaken things up where he's felt necessary. Um, I think that, I don't know if you're going to play this bit, but him talking about the IPL, I found particularly interesting. He, he, alongside Peterson, was very much an early cheerleader for it at a time when English players who went out there were generally kind of disregarded as, as greedy and there was no appreciation for the development of a game that might happen um, by playing in the IPL. Uh, and he's not afraid to point that out. He's, he's proud that he was saying well before other people that the IPL could be a great thing for English cricket, and I think most people, not all, but most would uh, agree that has been the case, played a significant role in England winning the World Cup, I would argue, uh, and, as, and the development of some players like Archer, like uh, Butler, uh, in turning them to the England players that we see today.
1: Mm. I thought what was most interesting uh, in the IPL chat was the detail about how he wasn't actually making money from his first. Mm. And that's something I've heard. I think Luke Wright said that on the T20 pod he did with us in the summer.
4: Sam um, Billings as well.
1: Yeah. So these, so these guys who who went out onto the early early editions of the IPA weren't actually making money. They were going, obviously there would be, be financial opportunities down the line if they did well there, but it was predominantly for the, the improvement of their games. Anyway, it is a really interesting conversation and here it is
4: on your own disruption as it were uh, right right from the start of your career you stood out as someone who thinks a bit differently or at least does things their own way is that kind of reflective of your personality more generally do you think
5: yeah I I think it is Um, and I wouldn't say it's it's always differently it's always sort of my point of view I think is always different and I see it as as normal and, and logical and there's thought and process behind everything that I do and it's not necessarily, you know, going with a group's decision or going with uh, the way everybody plays because that's what people do. It's because you know it, I see it as being the right decision, um, and I've sort of always been like that um, since I was a kid and came across and um, to London at sixteen. So in the Middlesex, I've always sort of done things the way that I think is right, or I've been taught to 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 do them. So sort of it's been something yeah i suppose
4: is that family influence is that are your, are your parents strong on that kind of stuff
5: um I, I think one of my big biggest characteristics is that i have always shown belief in my own ability from from start to finish regardless of how bad the form i'm in right or how dry i just i've always had that belief that i can get out of it and i think that's similar. Um, attribute in, in believing that your own game or your own decision is good enough to get you out of a hole or to achieve something or get you over the line mm. um, probably contributes to it a little bit.
4: Um, being an Irishman who wanted to play for England, it could be considered disruptive in it itself at that point. Uh, <laughs> but you, you were pretty single minded in that ambition from very early on in your career, weren't you?
5: Yeah, I was, yeah. Um, from, I think I was about 13, maybe 14. Um, when we sat down with the Irish coach at the time, uh, me and my dad, because I'd spoken to my dad about wanting to play Test cricket and wanting to play um, professionally and doing all the above, and dad was like, "Well, you can't do that here. Like, we need to look at other avenues." And I think it was a, a few weeks later, he said, "Let's we're going we're going to watch a club game down the road, and the Irish coach is going to be there. We're going to have a chat with him." Uh, my dad spoke on behalf of both of us, and and just said Owen said he wants to play Test Match Cricket and would like to go to England if the opportunity ever came about. Um, not only that, would love to play for England.
2: Um, so yeah, it's a bit foolhardy or <laughs>
4: stupid
5: or courageous or brash.
4: Did you ever have any concerns yeah. about being accepted as an England player or, we, or was that always clear that that would be determined by your performance, so kind of in your hands to an extent?
5: absolutely definitely in my hands Um, I think you know playing cricket in Ireland uh, was was a challenge within itself because when uh, the age I am growing up it it certainly wasn't uh, many troubles around but it was certainly viewed as a British sport or an English sport and it was looked down upon if you participated or played in it so I didn't really ever feel like I fitted in uh, in playing football, getting football hurling, I, I really enjoyed them playing, but in the back of
4: my head I'm thinking, oh, all I want to do is play cricket. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sort
5: of coming across um, to Middlesex, that feeling of, oh, I'm living my dream, I don't really care what anybody else thinks. I never really, I suppose, gave much thought to, to trying to fit in. I suppose I, I just thought, you know, what if I do well, I'll enjoy this. Um
4: yeah And the way you batted too was, was very different. It perhaps doesn't seem so different now because lots of people are playing unorthodox shots but um, were you always determined to kind of embrace that otherness? Did you see it as a selling point or, or was that just kind of how it came naturally to you?
5: Yeah, no, no, well, the reason I started playing all these inventive shots, sort of the, the stuff that's normal now, was to start with, so in order to get into the T20 team, everybody's talking about you, have to clear the ropes, and you got to pick your gaps, and, and I could pick gaps, but the gaps that I picked were different, um, right. and I couldn't clear the ropes, I remember playing first season of T20 cricket, I think it was about 18 and 19 at Middlesex and I was caught in front of the pavilion about three times and I was like, I'm just going to have to find another way here to, to try and I, I'd already played the sweeps and the laps um, but obviously there's a higher risk in, in getting out of the judgement of what people would say or your coach would think of it um, but luckily I, I came in and, and they worked um, um, so I just sort of stuck with them until I developed a bit, a bit more of a power game
4: and then a bit later on um, You were talking about the IPL Long before it was fashionable in English cricket At a time when the ECB were Nowhere near as keen on it as they are now uh, You obviously <laughs> felt yeah, I mean that's probably an understatement uh, <laughs> But you clearly felt that was Pause worth fighting for
5: Yeah absolutely um, I mean going there And experiencing it for the first time As a, a, a young 20 year old Was just The best thing ever um, I played. I think the first season I played about five out of the first six games, and then didn't play a game for the rest of the, the season. But got to play with Stain, Callis, Cumblay, Boucher, Peterson, Dravid. Like rubbing shoulders with these guys, and you know, just sitting back and watching and trying to take everything in was just the, the best thing ever. Um, and for me, that the, the most I learned in a short space of time was always been going to the IPL and, and, you know, watching different guys or focusing on different things or working on something that you, you didn't think of or going there and being reassured about what you're doing is the right thing. You just need to persist with it because it is the best tournament in the world. Um, so f- right from the first time that I went, I was like, how is everybody not seeing this? This is just unbelievable. This is the future. So...
4: Was it frustrating yeah. then to see it kind of... It was almost characterised as those players who went there were, were greedy rather than going there to advance their game. That wasn't really talked about at that point.
5: No, but the other thing nobody talks about is that I think the first year I went there, it actually cost me money to go because the the implications in our contracts with our counties were so drastic and I wasn't being paid um, on, a, on a big contract in Middlesex or anything but the implications were so drastic and I wasn't on a lot of money at Bangalore that I didn't make any money going. Right. Um, and when you seem to say that to people, they don't believe it. They think, oh, this lad's a bit of a fool and he's trying to pull the wool over our eyes. Um, but and there, there are a few guys that have been in the same boat before. Um, and I think <clears throat> just the whole developmental thing, it's sort of in the back of my head, the longer term picture was if I always came back a better player, I would always push to play for England. That's just, you know, that's how I saw it.
4: Did you ever consider it, it could do the opposite, damage during career by kind of swimming against the tide like that? We obviously saw with Kevin Peterson it became a, a source of conflict with the ECB.
5: Yeah, I, uh, absolutely. I, certainly that I, I ran the risk of that. Um, particularly in my test career. Um, I was advised to come back and play county cricket and, and you know fight my way back in through that that avenue but the way that i actually got selected to play test match cricket was through international performances and other mm. well, performances in a white ball shirt I, I mean i only had one full county season and that was when i was 20 I think it was 22 or something and average mid 40s but i got a 100 against south africa that was more like a one day 100 than a a uh, four 100 yeah. um, so i always thought that you know if i build my white ball game that will always impact my red ball game and i could come back and play championship cricket but i'm in amongst you know a couple hundred people trying to get one position and you're playing on wickets that aren't susceptible to scoring runs hmm. in april and may
4: um, more recently, the, the kind of most obvious example, I guess, of your disruption is the transformation of England's one-day sides uh, and your leadership. How do you think you were able to spark such a dramatic change in such a short space of time?
5: Um, I, I think you know, certainly I had my own ideas about how um, the team um, should play and, and the, the, I suppose, the, the way in which we wanted to go about things. But none of that would have been possible without. Straussie allowing myself Trevor Bayliss and Paul Farbrace the freedom to play around with exactly what we wanted to achieve with that, This was their style of play was the most important thing um, selection was extremely important so channeling everybody onto the same page to achieve the same thing with 2019 in mind um, helped mm, myself TB and Farby uh, like a, a huge amount because there's always a continuous message and it, it, it never changed you know, throughout the whole four years but that was allowed to be able to be consistent and transparent mm. by the selectors being on the same page Strauss being on the same page and then all the senior players knowing exactly exactly the direction we're going in and being able to drive that
4: do you think, in a sense, um, how bad England were at the 2015 World Cup may have actually helped in that sense, and that there was no disputing that significant change was needed?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if we had a limp away into the quarterfinal, or maybe even fluke to a semi-final, there's no way there would have been drastic measures taken. I don't think the job would have as MD would have been um, given to Stroud. I think Paul Downton would have been kept on, Um and I don't
4: think a lot would have changed. Hmm. Um, and then the World Cup itself, uh, 2019, people might not necessarily admit it now, but Jofra Archer's arrival just before the World Cup wasn't necessarily well received by a few people. There was a school of thought that he could disrupt the team dynamic. I wondered how, had you had in your mind for a while that Archer would be part of your World Cup plans and, and did you have any doubts at all about adding him to the group at that stage?
5: Um. Ugh. Everybody had their eye on Joff. I mean, certainly having played against him quite a bit for Middlesex, uh, you you earmark him as a guy that could definitely play international cricket. Just obviously depending on how long his qualification would take and how his body would hold up to county cricket, were two challenges that he w- he would have had to overcome. Um, but certainly, I didn't have any doubt when it came around to adding him to, I suppose, a preliminary squad to start with and then seeing how he was around the group um, did he engage what the reaction was to everybody else Hmm. and I suppose the 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 continuous question we asked ourselves was are guys adding value so um, Joffre certainly did
4: and then um Immediately after the World Cup final, you you famously said you'd asked Adel Rashid if Allah was with you, and he'd confirmed that he was. And you've said since since said that multiculturalism has made you stronger as a team. Um, do you feel like it's especially important to emphasise that point in the current climate that this England cricket team should stand for something positive and inclusive?
5: Uh, absolutely. I I think we we are the best. Uh, sporting team in the country to embody diversity, change, and making things functional and productive in that way to make a difference because we we live and breathe it every day of of when we when we're together as a side or when we play, um, and I actually think we need to start talking about it a little bit more because it has become such an important part of. I suppose society this year, you know, everybody sort of sat down at the start of the year or mid-year and and, and sort of was forced to look at where their moral moral compass is pointing. And I think within our side, we take it for granted that we get on really well. And there's quite a lot of diversity within the group. Um, and how, how we make it happen. So I think from here we need to start telling individual stories a bit more and, and being more vocal about how we um, sort of are as a group and, and embrace everybody's culture and, you know, just raising awareness around education and um, different, I suppose, variants in society.
4: And then, just finally, do you, do you, uh, more generally, do you think English cricket is a more inclusive and progressive place than it was when you first came into it? hundred
5: percent, absolutely. Yeah. Um. I yeah. I do. I do. I think the. Well, certainly this year there has been some extremely progressive work um, initiated by by Tom Harrison. Um, I think at, at the start of the summer, when we sort of all came back. Um, the way he spoke about English cricket's history and how we had um, gotten things wrong to a certain extent but really, really want to get it right. And then the people he engaged with, the communities and the, the planning that's going behind the future programmes, particularly at grassroots level, um, have been impressive.
1: Away from England, the biggest news of the week was the postponement of Australia's tour of South Africa. In a statement, Cricket Australia's interim CEO Nick Hockley said, due to the public health situation in South Africa, which includes a second wave and new variant of the virus, and following extensive due diligence with medical experts, it has become clear that travelling from Australia to South Africa at this current time poses an unacceptable level of health and safety risk to our players, support staff and community. Cricket South Africa issued a strongly worded statement of their own. Graham Smith said, we are extremely disappointed by the decision of Cricket Australia. Cricket South Africa has been working tirelessly in recent weeks to ensure that we meet every single expectation of Cricket Australia. If that series is not rescheduled, which looks unlikely, it means that New Zealand have qualified for the World Test Championship final. I think finally it's worth saying that the COVID-19 situation in South Africa is very similar in fact, almost identical as it was to when England pulled out of the tour there in late 2020. It was actually much worse when Sri Lanka toured there for the turn of the year. Phil, what do you make of that?
2: My first thought is for South African cricket, which has been, uh, you know, beaten from pillar to post over the last couple of years. Uh, you know, mass defections to English cricket. Um, a, a, let's charitably put it, mismanagement from, from the board, which has been rejigged, uh, in, in recent months. Um, and when England pulled out just before Christmas, as you mentioned, that involved a huge financial hit for cricket, South Africa. And now this will, will have a, have a similar impact on their already very squeezed finances. So my, my, my heart goes out to cricket, South Africa, uh, and for the players involved as well. This would have been um, a chance for them to, to, to re-emphasize their, their place in world cricket after, after a rough couple of years really. And they're an extremely proud cricketing nation as well. And they'd have been looking forward to receiving Australia, I think so. So it's a real blow from, from an administrative perspective from from the, for the fans as well. They've been robbed of, of what would have been a really, really good series. Um, only, only australians only Australian set up will truly know what the motivation is, but from the outside it 's hard to argue with with caution being the the name of the game is it it 's hard really in these circumstances um, these extraordinary times and all of that it 's hard to argue with with, with, a, with a decision such as this. It was hard to argue with England coming home um, when, when they were faced with what they had just before christmas time um, if a team all right, let's take it back to last summer. If, if either of the West Indies or Pakistan had turned around and said, you know what, we want to play cricket, but we don't want to risk our squads in, in England in the height of this horror show, then I don't think any England cricket fan really would have queued up and said, well, hold on, you, you, have, you have an obligation to come over here and you're actually uh, disrespecting us or disrespecting the game by not showing up. Uh, so I think... My my instinctive thought on this, and I have to say, I haven't read around it too much, and I haven't read the quotes. I was interested by by Smith's, as you say, strongly worded response. I th- would have imagined, at least diplomatically, it would have been a bit more mollifying from South Africa's perspective. But it speaks, I suppose, of a cricketing culture that is, that is scrabbling uh, around at the moment. Uh, but yeah, I would... I, I wouldn't want to queue up and question Australia's decision here, or or, or bring any kind of suggestion of skullduggery into play at this at this point, because, well, I mean the evidence is
0: is staring us all in the face. I saw uh, Smith's interviews on social media, some of it, and 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 it seemed to me like he was more annoyed that it had gone, it, it had sort of maybe been a late call and that a lot of work had gone into getting it on and, and, and working on some of those things that England had concerns about before Christmas and, and that sort of thing. So it, it seemed like, although you can't have any qualms with, with Australia pulling out because of the safety and, and things like that, that maybe they were a bit irked that they got this far down the line and it looked like it was happening and then, and then they pulled out relatively late. But I mean, yeah, you can't have any issue with it really. Yeah, I'm just going to, I read a
3: piece by Telfer advice on Crit Buzz, who pointed out that less than 24 hours earlier the South African president had announced the daily number of new cases of the virus had eased enough to suspend the ban on the sale of alcohol and public a- access to beaches that's the quote from Telfer's piece um, and he said there were just over 2500 new cases in South Africa on Monday compared to almost 22,000 just under a month ago so this is an improving situation there albeit there is the complication of the variant, which is obviously a, a, the cause for anxiety kind of across the world. I just wondered, did England, cutting short their White Bowl tour of South Africa, kind of add to cricket Australia's anxiety and, and kind of set a precedent for this, almost make it acceptable? And I certainly, I wouldn't question any Australian individual who didn't want to go there. But, I mean, Australia did tour England in September. Um, we weren't in lockdown as such, but we were, had, did have strict measures and the cases in England at that time were about the same as they are in South Africa at, at this point. Um, and it does, it does kind of reinforce this notion that the big three committed to playing each other, but the other series are much more expendable. Now, maybe that's being harsh on Cricket Australia in this case. The, the, the situation isn't directly comparable to what Australia experienced in England in September, but it is unfortunate that it's just another example of adding to that sense that it's kind of one rule for one and another rule for another.
1: It does impact the World Test Championship. So if the series is not rescheduled, New Zealand will qualify. Um, And now listen closely, listeners, if you want to hear all the permutations. So Australia will qualify if England beat India 1-0, 2-0 or 2-1, or if India beat England 1-0, or if the series ends in a draw. England can only qualify (laughs) if they beat India 3-1, 3-0 or 4-0. Uh, and India will qualify if they beat England 2-0, 2-1, 3-0, 3-1 or 4-0. Just you say that.
3: that, yes. I was reading Ben's piece where he obviously gets This is Ben's favourite part of cricket, basically, <laughs> the on that side of it. Uh, and he, he was talking about slow over rates could be, could be crucial here.
1: So I think they already have been.
3: They already have been, but they could be again. So basically yeah. captains need to watch out on their slow over rates during the series because that could change the situation again because things are so tight. So Ben is going to be sitting there with his, with his watch, checking these over rates over the course of the next few weeks
0: on the yeah. edge of his seat. A few Benny Hill-type sessions uh, as it gets more, <laughs> more down to the wire.
1: Yeah, that, that, that is totally mad that that's how <laughs> that, that competition could be decided.
0: It, uh, it does just show that, I mean, Australia have effectively taken it out of their own hands by not by not going to South Africa. So it shows how concerned they must have been to effectively... Relinquish the the opportunity to make that world test championship final and, and have the sort of the ball be in their court and it, they be in control of it. So the fact that they've decided not to do that probably does speak volumes as well. There has
1: been some test cricket this week. So right now, Bangladesh are 242 for five at the end of the first day of their first test at home for the West Indies. Uh, we had a really good test in Pakistan. Phil, you watched a fair bit of this test uh, that Pakistan won by seven wickets after being 27 for four. Ferd Alam scored his third test 100 and 34-year-old left-arm spinner Norman Alley took 5 for 35. Phil, uh, what did you enjoy most from it?
2: It was a a good kind of slow-moving humdinger of a test match. Ebbed and flowed. After that first day, South Africa would have thought, all right, we're we're right in here. I mean, I think one of the the four wickets was a night watchman, but even so, 30 for 4 overnight and... You know, I mean, Pakistan is, is my second team always just because of the way they go about their business. So I was a bit down on it after that and then flipped on the following day. And, and Fawad Alam was, was doing his, his unique and, and strangely beautiful thing. But one of the great cricket photographs I've ever seen has emerged uh, from this test match with Ngidi I think it was Nghidi, um bowling right arm round at the top of his mark, just just getting going. And the photographer has positioned himself right behind Farwood Alarm, who's standing about seven yards outside his leg stump, uh, chest open, obviously, completely open stance, uh, with the bat sort of floating in the wind somewhere. Uh, and this is a man who's got a, t- got a Test Match 100
0: um, and a very, very good back-to-the-wall Test Match 100 as well. It's like how so, I bat in the nets when there's a fast bowler. You just you know, sort of get, get your body well out of that way. It, it, looks,
2: it looks, like that, doesn't it? It looks like a complete kind of rebuttal of, yeah. of any of any of any kind of approach to the game, and yet, and yet the lad can play and yeah.
0: averages fifty odd in first-class yeah. cricket. So it's, Shubman it's... Shubman Gill does it too. He sort of backs away, and, and it, it looks almost like he's backing away out of fear or whatever. But then he, he sort of carves it through. So yeah, maybe we'll see more of it.
2: Yeah, no, I have seen that. He's a slightly more classical player, but, but true. I, I know, true, true, just I know where like coming from. Um, and, and I also like to see Markram get runs, who I think is a really good player, who's inexplicably not quite cracked uh, top-level cricket yet. Um, he had a very good year, actually, in Test cricket. I think he made sort of 400s in a year, but then he's felt fallen away. Um, inexplicably not worked in one-day cricket, and yet you'd look at him and you'd think he'd be a very useful one-day opener or on number three. So it's good to see him get runs. And and if I were going to pick a moment from the game, it was that last half an hour on day Three or maybe, day, yeah, day three, when it looked like Pakistan were knackered and there'd been a long, fruitless day in the dirt. And then Yasir Shah uh, came in and, and, and he's, he's, a, he's a lone man, isn't he? He's a lone leggy in, in test cricket now, all right? Rashid Khan gets the odd game here and there. But essentially, he's, of the big nations, he's, he's the, the, the last man standing, really. And so to see him affect another game of cricket, another test match, was quite heartening, really. It was good to see, um, and Baba Razan gets his gets gets a win under his belt as skipper. So yeah, it was it was good. It was a really good quality game of cricket, I found. Um, and the next one starts tomorrow morning. I think it's Thursday morning.
1: Two two really evenly matched sides. I think. Um, I don't think there are. Either, I don't think there are many teams in Test cricket who are that evenly matched. I think um, you're right to pick out that mini passage play at the end of day three. I loved how, how close Abid Ali was at Silly Point, just seeing the, the, the right-hander's dead-bat it, but he, he was still in with a chance of catching them. Um, yeah, I thought it evolved beautifully. Um, and, a, and a wonderful test. And Yeah, I mean, I, w- I wish this series was longer, really do, especially in it, with it being on Sky and being able to watch it in the UK. Um, wish there, there was more of it. Um,
2: and just, just one thing to add. Quinton de Kock, I've never seen a captain look less enamored to have the armband as Quinton de Kock does. He has, he has that look on his face of being slightly startled anyway, um, but he's clearly not the right man for the job, right? You know, he's a sort of untrammeled, flair, batsman keeper who needs to go out there and not worry about it. And he's famously kind of interested in fishing and hunting and you know, he's he's not a particularly cerebral kind of bloke, I don't think. And yet he's got the gig probably because he's one of the first names on the team sheet and Faf doesn't want to do it anymore.
1: It's a bit it's a bit Joe Rue getting the captaincy in early 2017, isn't it? I know they're different characters, but it kind of similars like just who else was there? There was, like there's so few people in that South Africa team who are actually guaranteed of a spot in the eleven. I know you know uh, Markham's, Markham's doing well now. He's scored millions of runs in first class cricket this year, by the way. Mm. Um, but he's not been assured of his place. Temba Voom has not been assured of his place. Wattie Van Dusen's not really assured of his place. Um, so there wasn't really that many, there weren't really a, 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 many other options. And I no, I,
2: I, think, I think Markham is, provided he can score enough runs, I think he's the long-term option. He was captain of their under-19s team. Um, he's a very articulate bloke. Uh, he's very mature for his age. I think he, he will be their plan, but he's got to score enough runs.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, I think it clearly was their plan. They gave him the ODI <clears> capacity for a bit when he, after like five minutes of international cricket. So um, I think they've been thinking that way for quite a long time. Um, so, yeah, we'll interesting to see how that develops. Elsewhere, South Africa women are currently 2 0 up against Pakistan in the T20I. Tasman Brits has scored half centuries in both games so far, while Shabnin Ismail continue a fine form from the ODI series with figures of 5 for 12 in the second game. Jim, what's your moment of the week?
0: <laughs> uh, I think it does still count as this week. It Is, uh, uh, is it called Toasty Sandwich Gate? Everything's a gate nowadays, but um, yeah, Toasted Sandwich Gate. So this is a report in the Sydney Morning Herald, which um, the reporter suggested that there was trouble in the Australian camp and that players were a bit peeved with Justin Langer and they hadn't been uh, they'd sort of been going behind his back and reporting to the coach uh, the other coaches and they were a bit annoyed with his man management style his his intensity that we've that we've seen uh, in the test documentary that was on Amazon last year and uh, just um it, it, the int- well, it was there's lots of interesting things that came out of it but one thing that everyone sort of latched onto was this quote that that Langer told off an unnamed as then unnamed player for carrying a toasted sandwich onto the field uh, I'm not sure if he was carrying on it or was it already in his pocket but he told him off for it because he said oh it, you know it looks bad how does it look we're trying to save a game at the Gabba and you're walking on with a with a snack basically so then obviously cricket twitter you know, there's lots of puns and lots of told uh, Edmonton Disintegration was a good one that I saw. And there's a few other ones. But uh, there was sort of a, a clamour to find out who it was. And it was obviously Marnus Labashain. It was always going to be him. The only thing that I, I was uh, sort of querying was what was in it. Apparently it was Cheese and Ham. Whereas he strikes me as definitely like a peanut butter and jelly kind of guy. So... Um,
1: <laughs> has it been confirmed yet? I thought it was that there was a very recent. No, it
0: has, it has been confirmed. I was doing my my swatting up the yeah, ads as you told me to, and, and and Langer has come out and said, yeah. Does it make him a bad guy for bollocking Marnus for carrying on, a, on a, so it? So it, it was him. It was always going to be him. Uh, and other people have weighed in. Shane Warne's famous toasty lover had a Breville, uh, Breville installed at Hampshire, I think, didn't he, uh, Warne? But he, he's, he's weighed in and said, you can only do that shit when you're winning. So it's fine if you're winning, but if you're losing, no toasties and no snacks. The, the, the classic skewed morality of, of <laughs> high-end cricket. Yet again. Um, um, I, I
2: totally defend Langer on this. You can't walk on the pitch with a toasted sandwich in your pocket. It's totally ridiculous. If you, if you did that Saturday threes, then you'd be turfed out. You can't do that. You simply can't do it. It's really, totally ridiculous. I'm fully behind Langer on this and calling him out.
0: I've uh, taken I, sweets. I've, I've, su- su- sweets. You must have taken a, the odd sweet or something into the field in your pocket. That's different, yeah, right? Sure. Yeah.
2: But there are, yeah. there are limits. You know, you don't take yeah. a... You don't take a roast dinner onto, onto the pitch, do you? Li- I'd Not like to put see you it in done. one pocket and <laughs> in the other. You don't take a cooked meal in, onto
0: the pitch. <laughs> a is, it, is, it, is it the toasting that's perturbing you? Uh,
2: it's the bread based element to it, it's the, the substantial food <laughs> stuff nature of it. But yeah, toasting it is just pushing it one step too far, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's
0: very, very strange behaviour. It reminded me of you know, going back to your school days when you didn't have shin pads and you would shove uh, exercise books down your socks in case you got... The, I, I wondered if it, if it was maybe because, you know, he was feeling at short leg and he couldn't find his equipment, so he was sort of <laughs> stuffing some sandwiches down there from the tea interval, but I don't think that was the case. Exercise books in
2: place of shin
0: pads, did you, James, when Absol- you were growing up? Absolutely, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, when I were a lad. Yeah, we I, were lucky. I, we were lucky to have exercise books.
1: I, I'm with um, I'm with Phil on this one. Um, I think Langer's response has been remarkably mild-mannered. Like, yeah. imagine you played 100 tests for Australia. You know, you were part of that Australia side, and you're going down two-one at home to to depleted India side, and your your second best batsman's going out with a with a toasty. Um, <laughs> by, by
2: one's logic, what if? You know, if you've won sixteen test matches in a row, what can you take onto the pitch, I wonder? I'd like a whole I, banquet. <laughs> just mowing I like the there.
0: idea I like your idea of a carvery, sort of gravy in the box, you know, different trimmings placed around your body. That would be quite yeah. a good one. Yeah. That's think, straight in
2: wicket, just position it there. <laughs> but five runs if you hit it, but you know, the pros outweigh the cons. <laughs>
0: I think the reason I chose it as a moment as we obviously it's quite funny, but also the serious thing is that perhaps it points to there being trouble at Mill in the Australia camp. And the fact that some I think the report says it's um, senior players have gone to the press effectively to sort of leak this stuff about Langer rather than Langer in his interview this morning when he when he outed Lambert and He also sort of said that he was disappointed that they didn't come to him first and talk about it sort of airing there. Dirty laundry in public, um, or airing their, their greasy toasties in public. But nice. so it does. That thanks. It does suggest <laughs> that um, things aren't. I know they've had a long time in the bubble and things like that. Um, but It suggests that after that defeat, you know, they they perhaps need a bit of time to lick their wounds.
2: Yeah, it happens with cricket teams, doesn't it? it happened with Andy Flowers, England team. It, eventually, that kind of intensity. Becomes corrosive or can become corrosive. I'm not saying it's necessarily happened here, but uh, as ever with Australian cricket, if they if they lose a few Test matches at home, then things start to come out. And and, and you're right. You're right to bring this up, Jim, because it, it does tap into something about about their setup. And was it Usman Khawaja, Joe? Was it on the documentary last year who called this out and was quite articulate actually about about Langer's. Uh, how his enthusiasm can actually become quite claustrophobic um, and, yeah, and playing elements
3: of that. Yeah, and then players were kind of intimidated by him, didn't want to go and actually kind of have a proper conversation. And I think look, for that, it's interesting about Flower because I think that's an interesting example. Is that <laughs> kind of style of coach that real hands on? And like Peter Moores was a similar example, different kind of personality, but always being there rather than being a sounding board when you need them. I think it it seems increasingly like kind of an outdated style of coaching. It's obviously very different to the Bayless silverwood style that we, we see with England. And perhaps that's what players prefer these days. And uh, particularly when you have potentially several coaches, if you're playing at the IPL or other T20 leagues, do you want, do you want that kind of one man overbearing coach who kind of tells you exactly how to do things? Now Langer has, come out and said that's not his style of coaching at all but between the documentary this is a problem when you do a documentary <laughs> yeah. they're great to watch but it does leave you open to criticisms um, and uh, he does look he looks at times like a bit of a pain to work under
1: mm. I think it, it's worth mentioning as well probably should have mentioned it earlier that one of the uh, consequences of the postponed Southwood tour is that Australia only have one scheduled test before the Ashes and England have uh, Eleven, so uh, they don 't actually have that much time in cricketing time together really to get things right if things have gone slightly awry.
2: Said we're so, fresh, though will <laughs> <laughs> Phil your moment of the week my moment of the week was was James Vince, the great enigma that is James Vince, um, playing a, an iridescently beautiful innings uh, in the big bash eliminator or playoff or something or other anyway, there was something on the game and uh, uh, he he came out and strummed a, a stunning ninety odd ninety eight not out. He ended up with in the end, chasing one sixty odd, uh, and he made made a mockery of, of of the attack that he was facing under lights. Was giving all given all the props by the big Australian beast in the commentary box from from punter downwards. Uh, they were they were winning the game so comfortably his Sydney team that um, they actually his his opposite number is is non striker actually deliberately slowed down in order to try and get James Vince to his hundred. They had three overs in which to get a handful of runs. Uh, Vince faced the first, first ball of, of, I think the 17th or 18th over and, and, and clothed it straight to, to extra cover and took a single to take himself to 98. Thereafter, his, uh, his, his man um, blocked out the rest of the over. The crowd were loving it incidentally and were willing him on. But Vince, being Vince, of course, uh, he gets down to the other end, and um, he ne- he needs he needs two for his hundred, um, and uh, he has to hit a boundary because scores are level. And Andrew Ty uh, runs in bowls a, uh, a particularly short pitched short pitcher that that sort of floats over Vince's head and shoulder, unhittable. Bounces through three or four times to the keeper for a, for a wide. Uh, Sydney win the game. Vince is left high and dry on 98. The crowd are booing, but they're kind of laughing as well. It seems like, like kind of one of these sort of cricketing moments where, you know, you might give them half a look, but then you shake hands and get on with it. Uh, Vince threw daggers at Andrew Ty and uh, then gave an interesting passive-aggressive interview afterwards when asked, what do you think about Ty's final delivery. He says, "Well, you'll have to ask him." It landed by his bootlaces, so you tell me, uh, which I thought was slightly ungracious, to be honest, because he's just come and come and made people's night and batted beautifully, and you can understand why he's going to want that hundred. Of course, you do, but uh, he's got his team into the into the, the the next part of this tremendously elongated and never-ending tournament, and. Uh, I just thought, be the bigger man here, Jimmy Boy, be the bigger man, just just stroll off 98. It's kind of cooler to get 98 than 100 anyway. Uh, but no, he was, he was seething in his own kind of slightly inverted and, and uh, introverted way. Um, but yeah, it was just a classic Vince moment, really. And it reminded me of another doomed um, stylist, Ian Bell, who... Do you remember when he got 199 at Lords and then caught and bowled by Paul Harris against <laughs> South Africa and walked off sort of swearing into his helmet, as he always used to, into his helmet strap? And uh, Duncan Fletcher then put the boot in after the game. He said, how can you do that on 199? Just knock it down to long on for a single. He, he charmed the pants of everyone for 199 and was still the villain, was still the kind of the, 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 the weak-willed, lily-livered, hopeless, aesthete. And I'm afraid our boy James just slips uh, effortlessly into that category yet again, despite having completely ruled the, in- the innings and the evening. It's a very James-Vince moment. In back on, I think, tomorrow morning.
1: <laughs> in fairness, I don't think that had anything, this didn't have anything to do with Vince himself. O- on the big bash. It wouldn't have course. happened
2: to anyone else. It wouldn't have happened, to, it had to happen to Vince. He <laughs> had to cloth his Charles to hit a boundary when he was on 97 and then receive that delivery when he was on 98. It had to happen to Vince.
1: I've been off for the last week, so I haven't been following the cricket as closely as usual. So I was um, quite surprised to see just looking at the big basketballs. Like, Marnus Lambert Shane turning into Rashid Khan. Like, I know he can bowl a bit of a leg spin, but, um, yeah, that was, that, was, that was quite interesting. That was uh, not my moment of the week, though. My moment of the week was from the Abu Dhabi T10. Um, I don't know if you've seen this, but...
0: No.
2: Um, <laughs> oh, the lad who was changing <laughs> his shirt. Yeah, yeah. yeah, oh, was, right. yeah. Luke Wright yeah. was
1: uh, captaining uh, this side Jamie Overton bowled a rank full toss outside off stump, going hurtly towards a boundary, and UAE's Ronnie Mustafa was changing his shirt, so his, his shirt was basically off whilst he was chasing the ball. And uh, if, if I'm picking a specific moment, it's Luke Wright's confused face um, <laughs> watching this.
2: Good quiz show. name. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that was that was my moment of the week. Uh, I, I I have. I've watched very
2: little of the T10 thing, seen one or two uh, brief moments. It does amuse me how people are kind of... The mental gymnastics required to try and really get behind T10, but also put the boot in on the 100. And there's been quite a few of these voices on Twitter. I do. it it does does amuse me. Uh, more, More of the 10 over stuff, but definitely not the 100 ball stuff. I don't know. We'll get there in the end.
1: Nicholas Puran's doing quite well. I think he scored like 89 or 20 odd balls. How
0: long does it go on for? I don't know. (laughs) Just go straight (laughs) into the IPL. No one knows.
1: And that is the end of today's show. Uh, (laughs) Cheers, guys. Listeners, if you enjoyed it, tell your friends and we'll be back next week after the first test between England and India in Chennai. Cheers.
3: Podcast Network.